Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. I am a Christian. He who answers thus has decried everything at once, his country, profession, family. The believer belongs to no city on earth, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. Thus spoke John Chrysostom, who lived from around the year 347 to the 14th of September in 407. He died, actually, on a march into exile. So today I am joined with my co-host, Dr. Michael McMullen, and we are going to be talking about the famed golden-tongued preacher, John Chrysostom. So uh, we probably should, uh, at least we joked about this beforehand, how do we actually say his name? Is it Chrysostom, Chrysostom? Uh, Chrysostom. Chrysostom is, is how we're, we're going to do that. You get these Latin pronunciations, and then depending on which tradition you grew up in, you get a little bit of a different uh, view on uh, these pronunciations. Yeah, like tomatoes. Yeah, and tomatoes and mm. a garage and a garage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Aluminium. You know, these other things that we could go on and right. on about, but there there you go. Um, Chris Awesome ultimately is one of the most fascinating individuals uh, in the the post-Nicene, early post-Nicene era that is going to have a life and a ministry that really reverberates for multiple centuries. Uh, he's uh, eventually uh, cherished as a uh, as a saint, not only within the Catholic tradition, but also within uh, Orthodoxy, within the Lutheran Church, within uh, the Anglican Church. So, um, how does he get started in life that even puts him on this trajectory to becoming this uh, firebrand of a preacher that thousands of people are listening to? He feels a call to live a life that uh, is dedicated to God um, in in ways that um, uh, may seem incredibly extreme. He wants to live life as an ascetic. So uh, early in life, he spends four years in a cave uh, trying to, to live a life cut off from uh, the temptations of ordinary day-to-day living and and from the troubles and stresses that come and a life that's lived closer with God. Um, he spends two years trying to conquer the need for sleep. Yeah, so he spends like the two years standing. Yeah, it, it's not going to turn out well. No. <laughs> um, you know, we can see sleep as you know, an incredible waste of time when we could be really productive. But um, it it is actually a a great method for rejuvenating the body and and (laughs) actually for um, resting and for good. And, And, you know, exactly the opposite in a sense of production so that when one has recovered, then one can... um, actually use the time that they've been uh, rejuvenated. Um, it, it ends up damaging him personally, uh, physically, uh, to where he has trouble health-wise the rest of his life, this this two-year period. 
Yeah, and and if you've lived in a cave for four years, um, <laughs> that isn't going to help your um, uh, digestive system uh, particularly, <laughs> and and really from that point onwards, um, he he is damaged, you know, and will never be the same. And and he later does, uh, you know, regret that uh, particular period in his life, and and it will impact his life. As you know, a, a leader of the church, especially in Constantinople, where mm-hmm. he's expected to host and to dine visiting dignitaries, uh, he'll serve them a meal um, and then he'll leave because, uh, with his system being damaged, it, it, it's really not the best to view him. Um, at mealtimes, let's right. say, <laughs> without going into any further detail, really. He, he just he, – he seems to be one of these these uh, guys who are driven um, it, where it's, it's really all or nothing because even during this time period where he's trying to conquer sleep, he's standing for elongated periods of time, like trying to, to never do anything but stand. Supposedly, he commits almost all of Scripture to memory at the same time. Yes. I mean, his – his desire to memorize scripture is just incredible. And, and you know, it, again, it's this drive um, to be everything that he can be um, as a believer um, at that point. So, of course, he is recognized as somebody who's serious in his devotion to God, in his commitment to be a Christian. Um, uh, he wants to be, you know, in a sense, a, a recluse, a hermit, um, a monk, but he's not able to follow that path. You know, there are plans that God clearly has for him that yeah. are different than that. Yeah, because when he goes to Antioch to recover from uh, the <laughs> the stint in the cave, uh very quickly, uh, as he's interacting and engaging with individuals, he becomes uh, fairly well known because of his his ability in public speaking, uh, his expositions on biblical texts. Um, he writes all these homilies uh, on large portions of scripture uh, during this time period, and, uh, and at the same time, he's working and speaking out against social ills. So. Uh, he's advocating for the poor and speaking against excesses uh, that Christ- people who claim to be Christians uh, are having with their uh, personal displays of wealth and and other things. So he's engaging in all of these different ways in such a a powerful way that just thrusts him, uh, for lack of a better word, in, into the limelight. He can't stay away. Yeah, you know, for me, Chrysostom... It is one of the characters from the early church that we can learn so much from. Um, you know, he is an incredible writer. He is an incredible preacher. Um, he is an example in his commitment and dedication. But, you know, because of the, the record that he left and that's been left about him, um, we know him in in... in incredible detail, really, even compared to some of the other fathers. So, you know, we know he preaches for between 30 minutes and two hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that he really did seek 
to change the behavior of people mm-hmm. in Antioch and Constantinople, that he is working for their good, that he is seeking uh, to bring about a, a change in society. So his ministry in Antioch is is good. It's 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 effective. Um, he helps steer um, mobs away from destructive tendencies. He uh, preaches powerfully the word of God, and and people are saved. Um, somehow he ends up though in Constantinople, uh, and away from Antioch, this territory region city, city that he he loved. Uh, he's he's actually. <laughs> Uh, not expecting to ever go to this seat of power, uh, as it were, in, in Constantinople. Uh, yet, while he's there, it's not exactly an easy uh, life for him because of the position that he continues to put himself in as he preaches. No, he becomes increasingly uh, well-known for the quality of his preaching and um, for the life of his commitment and dedication. And so uh, he's not the first, but he's actually kidnapped by imperial soldiers and taken to Constantinople uh, to be uh, installed as the Patriarch Constantinople. How'd you love that to be uh, taken... You know, the, kidnapped to be. We'd like you to be our pastor. Uh, just yeah, to the, take the, you this from where is you are. Uh, God's will um, in action. Let's say through other people, and and uh, of course, if God can make a donkey talk, then He can use the emperor and the empress um, in in their you know desires to have uh, say the greatest orator in the capital city. But uh, you know what they don't realize is that yes, he's a great preacher and an incredible writer, uh, but he has no tact uh, whatsoever. Um, uh, He will preach what he believes God has laid on his heart. Which sometimes was directed right at, uh, let's say, the empress, right? Yeah, he's he's no respecter of persons. And uh, uh, if, if something is sinful, um, that he observes, then he's going to preach against it. So he preaches against uh, abortion. He preaches against prostitution. Uh, he preaches against gluttony, which obviously he will notice uh, more than a lot of other people. <laughs> uh, he'll he'll preach against the theater. Uh, a lot of Christians in Constantinople uh, are very nominal as as far as he sees, and so. He, he observes what they're doing outside of church life, and, and they're going to see very immoral shows at the theater. They're gl- going to the, the very bloody gladiatorial combats, um, and, and he speaks and, and exhorts them to live more as um, the, the ones that they claim to follow, to be Christians. Um, and then he observes the lifestyle of the empress, and, and it will come to a head when she erects this in, incredible statue uh, near to his church. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, it it almost seems like the two of them, I mean, when you look at the, the broader picture, she assumes that every time he's speaking about excess, that he's preaching about her, 
and, and it's almost like when she erects this <laughs> statue uh, very close to his church that uh, she's doing it on purpose, uh, almost to to uh, I, I guess uh, get into his business <laughs> along that way to basically say you you don't have anything here. Um, th- this kind of push and pull between uh, the the state, the government, and then also what uh, what he's seeing as the foundational truths of the Word of God, they just can't seem to stand together. There seems to be this this conflict that goes on uh, with within his engagement. I mean, and as you mentioned, he's speaking against all of these cultural frameworks. He's even attacking uh, homosexuality. He's attacking uh, just about any framework that was considered progressive uh, in his day to be able to try to correct those issues and try to uh, employ this um, in a way that uh, would get people to follow Jesus. Um, it, It seems to me that he had a strong desire, though, to make sure that the poor were taken care of. So even while he's speaking against the excesses of, say, like the empress or the ruling classes, he tends to strongly emphasize the need for us to carry on the work to care for those who are poor, who have nothing, those who are ill, and to encourage the church to frame up those types of ministries. Yeah, and of course, that was very unusual at that point for a bishop, a patriarch in the capital city in the Eastern Empire. Um, He had an incredible palatial residence given to him as the head of the church in Constantinople. And it was a powerful position. Um, And and yet that wasn't who John was. Mm -hmm. And, And his concern really was for people at seeking to, to follow Christ in, in whatever way that was. Uh, and this particular concern for the poor, of course, was magnified because he saw the lifestyle of the rich and wealthy in Constantinople uh, because that's where he was and, and that's the people that he would see and mix with because of his position even as he tried to be very different in the way that he lived. And so particularly concerned, you know, with those who uh, really were ignored and on the, the very fringe of, you know, mm-hmm. the, the great society in Constantinople. I, I love this, this quote. He says, do you fast? Well, then feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, visit the sick, do not forget the imprisoned, have pity on the tortured, comfort those who grieve and who weep, be merciful, humble, kind, calm, patient, sympathetic, forgiving, reverent, truthful, and pious. So that God might accept your fasting and might plentifully grant you fruits of repentance. It's he he is pressing this forward that it cannot just be these these outward signs of um, of piety. There there has to be this fully engaged life um, uh, uh, overall for the the believer to evidence one's salvation. Yeah, John was a, a, a very practical preacher, a very practical writer. You know, Aquinas said that if he could choose just one book outside of Scripture, it would be Chrysostom's commentary on Matthew. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, John Calvin said similar things about the value of Chrysostom. Um, it, when Chrysostom preached, it, it was about looking for fruit in the lives of those who claimed to be Christians. And, you know, he didn't see that in, in the lives of, of many um, who had wealth in Constantinople. And, of course, that would include the emperor and the empress. And, and that's going to lead to him uh, making enemies and, and soon being exiled. Uh, yeah, and it's – I want to talk in a minute about some of the problems with, with, with Chris Awesome too because for all of these things that he did that were good, uh, that sought to uh, fix these things, he had some issues uh, that we definitely want to uh, make sure – that we we um, we we understand, but it's in reading some of his his sermons that it's just masterful, even through translation and over the centuries of how he deals with um, concepts and ideas in the biblical text and how he he seeks to honor the text and seeks to uh, bring this out. Even if you go through um, and you read uh, his. Uh, probably his most famous work, his his Paschal homilies, these these homilies that he's writing uh, to be celebrated to help celebrate Easter, um, and it, it's it's so powerful. And, and here's just again a, a little a little bit where he's talking about um, how everyone should come to the Lord and how the the table is set for everyone. He goes, the table is fully laden. Delight everyone. The calf is fattened. Let no one go hungry. Let all enjoy the feast of faith. Receive all of you the riches of goodness. Let no one bewail his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his sins, for sins have dawned from the tomb. Let no one fear death, for the death of the Savior has set us free. He has quenched by it. He has led Hades captive. He who descended into death he embittered it when he tasted of its flesh. And foretelling this, Isaiah cried, Hell is embittered when it encountered you below. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was slain. It was embittered for it was overthrown. It was embittered for it was fettered. It was embittered. It received a body and encountered God. It received earth and met heaven. It received that which it saw and fell to what it did not see. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, hell, where's your victory? You could just imagine, and that was a horrible (laughs) attempt at oration there, but you could just imagine him whipping that out and just the, even the, the, the punch rhetorically here of, of how he talks about the very presence of Christ uh, in that idea that he descended into hell in his death. And then he is just, redeeming and changing and freeing and putting to death death. It's it's so powerful to read these. Yeah, this isn't what you would expect from the head of the church in Constantinople and from the church of the emperor. It, right. it, it would be, you know, uh, the status quo, uh, who the emperor is, the power of the royal family and um, all those kind of things. But, you know, Chrysostom doesn't alter his message because of his audience. And, and it's all about how you live as a believer. 
and and you know he believes scripture is god's word that it is infallible he's very clear um, about how trustworthy scripture is and um, he's very clear that reason and faith uh, go together that there's a big place for for reason as as part of your christianity you don't have to check your brains at the door mm-hmm. to be a christian and and so much i think of what he says it is relevant and challenging for today. That's one of the things that I love about Chris Austin, that he's not just a man of the fourth century, but he, he's relevant in the 21st. Um, he, he writes a book uh, about being a, a minister on the priesthood. And, and in the book, you know, he writes about the dangers of being a pastor. Well, here at the seminary, seminary where we are, of course, mm-hmm. that's so relevant too. He says, I do not know whether anyone has ever succeeded in not enjoying praise. And if he enjoys it, he naturally wants to receive it. And if he wants to receive it, he cannot help being pained and distraught at losing it. So, Mm. you know, when pastors are complimented on their preaching, it, it can become a real danger. Right. And here you have a man a leader in the fourth century that early recognizing the danger of such a thing. And if anybody was complimented on their preaching, oh, it, was, it, was it had to be yeah. golden mouth. Yeah. It, it, it's why he was there in Constantinople. He was the preacher of the day. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit. We, we said right from the beginning that, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is remembrance of his death. He died going into exile. How does the golden-mouthed preacher of Constantinople end up getting pushed into a state of exile? Um, he's not on his own. Athanasius, who defends you know, the great doctrine of the deity of Christ and the Trinity, will end up in exile several times. Yes. And, uh, Jonathan Edwards will end up being fired for his church, uh, e- even you know after the Great Awakening. So um, Chrysostom, even you know despite or in spite of his great preaching, uh, he makes enemies, and because he's tried to correct um, immoral living, because he's tried to um, correct to corrupt church in Constantinople um, and to fire immoral priests and deacons. So, of course, um, there are enemies who want John out. Right. And and they're able to assemble a a, a group of church leaders and others um, to have him basically sent into exile. And during this time, we we are already seeing, and and if you were to to stop and take uh, either one of us or really anyone in in church history, you would begin to feel the tension between east and west, right? We we start to see the geographies pull, and so as Chrysostom is getting in trouble, you have the the Roman bishop coming and and making an he's making an appeal to have him stay in his seat and to continue to preach, and you've got other leaders who are advocating on behalf of Chrysostom, but it just, it's to no avail. He, 
he is uh, ultimately uh, sent off uh, into exile. And uh, while he's in exile, he's still writing letters. He's still communicating with people. People are still listening to what he has to say. Um, and uh, eventually he is, um, I guess, sent into like double exile. Yeah, it's he, it's he, further he, exile. There, there's an earthquake um, in the midst of his first exile, and, and that's used as evidence that, that God isn't pleased with what's transpired, <laughs> and he's brought back. Um, but, but of course, his, his message doesn't change, right. and uh, he's exiled for a second time, and from that, there will be no reprieve. Uh, he's sent to walk to a village that's 400 miles away, and uh, his body just can't handle it. It, it is not going to cope with that. No. And so he dies along the way on the 14th of September. Now, for all of the things that we would say positive about uh, Chrysostom, and, and indeed, listener, grab some of his writings and read them. They are incredibly powerful, uh, again, especially his expositions on the biblical text. But for all of that, he also engaged in some things that we would say mm, probably not the best. And one of those would be his uh, engagement with the, the Jewish people. And in the process of um, his preaching and for a variety of different reasons, he became very vociferous in his engagement with the Jewish community, uh, including uh, in, inciting riots uh, that led mobs to, um, to, to persecute the Jewish community. Uh, from your perspective, what were some of the, the roots of that? Why would, why would he do that? The, the context of the time in Constantinople is that you did have a sizable Jewish population, and uh, they were causing some trouble for Christians in the city. Um, they were misleading and, and uh, attracting Christians um, away from the church, if that were possible. Some Christians had started to attend Jewish synagogues. They'd started to um, practice Jewish feasts. Um, mm -hmm. They were celebrating Jewish ceremonies. Um, and, and Chrysostom saw this happening. And, and because of all the light that the Jews had already received, in a similar way to, to what Christians um, had said for decades earlier, uh, Chrysostom, you know, would preach that the Jewish people um, were under judgment because of, of their rejection of Christ. And, and he tried to encourage Christians to see that, you know, Christianity had fulfilled um, what had been promised in the Old Testament, that, that the institutions of Judaism were now obsolete. The Messiah had come. The law and the prophets had been fulfilled. And, and so they were to follow Christ and not to be tempted to go into Judaism. Now, his sermons were, were very, um, you know, kind of motivated for good. Um, it, it's just that it was very possible to, to see them as 
you know, very animated and anti-Semitic in their content. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that many of them are going to be his his against the Jews uh, volume uh, are actually going to be used uh, for anti-Semitic purposes for centuries uh, from from that point. Um, it's interesting because in the the uh, one of the original kind of editors of of these homilies had actually stated pretty clearly that the um, the whole idea behind his discourses were against Christians who were Judaizing, right? Christians who were, like you said, celebrating feasts and doing these other things. But that kind of went unheeded in terms of how it was, and they were interpreted more as directly against the Jewish community. And, and not as if you can get him off the hook that easily, because there are mobs that hear him preach against the Jews, and then they they go and and um, disrupt the Jewish community with violence. So um, some of these things are are not as helpful um, yeah, when we and, look at and, that. And again, you know, with Chrysostom, um, one has to see that uh, he also um, would praise the Jewish people um, on a number of occasions. Um, uh, he praised them for their uh, diligent obedience uh, in in following, you know, what they believed to be true. So he said that diligence was pretty exemplary, um, and he actually used that as a comparison against lazy Christians who hardly practiced their faith. <laughs> so he could use them as this in- incredible example of what they should be like. And, and they hadn't even, you know, seen the truth. So they were still following in darkness, as it were. Well, of course, all that could be taken out of context. Too. And his listeners did. But he also supposedly was behind the huge mob that brought down the Temple of Artemis there uh, and uh, kind of rallied them against the excesses of the pagan worship uh, temple that was, that was still happening. Uh, there uh, during that time period that that he excited a mob and they basically took on the temple and uh, brought it down. Yeah, I mean, he he was um, or, or is, uh, you know, this wonderful example of somebody who can uh, motivate people uh, to stand for Christ in, in the middle of um, a, a hostile culture, mm-hmm. let's say. As somebody who believed scripture, somebody who said that, you know, theology must always be biblical because scripture is the primary source of the Christian faith. Well, with that, we are out of time. And so, listener, we thank you for joining us for this episode. Leave you with a quote from Chrysostom himself. He said, there is nothing colder than a Christian who does not seek to save others. Thank you again for joining us for this week in church history. We look forward to joining you next week.